So Isaiah 59 from verse 9. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance but it is far away. For our offences are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fermenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back. And righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looks and was dis- the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, his own righteousness sustained him he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak according to what they had done so he so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes he will repay the islands their due from the west men will fear the name of the lord and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent-up flood and the breath of the Lord that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit who is on you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Uh, My name's Dave. Uh, The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It's on page 1160. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind... Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. 
Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Andrew. Let's pray as we come to this part of God's word. Father, please speak to us this evening. Please help us to hear the right things from this passage and hear the right challenge that it has for us this evening. By the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) What do you think the uh, greatest challenge to Christian faith is in our context? I think if... We think about it, there are probably a, a few answers would compete. Maybe the cultural pressures Christian faith is under the, under, the way our world has moved away from Christian faith, the way a whole lot of things Christian believes, Christians believe are now not widely accepted and controversial. Um, I wonder if the greatest challenges to Christian faith, you might think, have to do with just the kind of lack of acceptance among your friends and your colleagues. Uh, or I wonder if it's got to do with a way of life that Christianity de- asks for that has, has moved so far from the kind of ways of life that are accepted amongst people around you. All of these things, I think, are challenges to Christian faith, but I want to suggest that there is maybe even a greater challenge in our context, which is the apparent ordinariness of life as a Christian. You see, day to day, the Christian life can look really very ordinary. I've worked a variety of jobs uh, before I did this one, and uh, in many of them, the moments when my faith kind of brought things to a climax or made a massive difference were actually few and far between. And often I kind of ended up just looking like a bit of a dork. It wasn't particularly impressive, there was, and people didn't feel like there was that much at stake. And this sense of the kind of ordinariness, the <clears throat> no big dealness of Christian faith can be reinforced by all sorts of things. Family and friends who, who kind of suggest to us that maybe you're taking this whole religious thing a little too seriously. Uh, for me, at the moment, it's conversations like this where I, you know, somebody asks me, how's work going, Andrew? And I say, well, it's actually, it's really challenging, but it's quite exciting. I feel like God is really at work at our church. It's and they say something like, oh, I'm, I'm glad your career's going well. It's just kind of flat. And you see, the world, around, the world we're a part of can just sap our faith, can, can sap any sense that there's something really important happening here and make us feel like at bottom Christian faith is really no big deal. And this is a danger, you see, Because the way we think about Christian faith, the way we imagine it, has a big deal, has a big impact, sorry, it is a big deal, but has a big impact on the way we do it. 
the way we engage with it. And that's why I think we really need to hear the passage before us this evening at the end of Ephesians. Because in the closing paragraphs of this letter, the Apostle Paul calls his readers, and and so God calls us to see the Christian life for what it is. Nothing less than a spiritual battle. And to call us to make the appropriate response, to step up in faith. And it's a call we need because the fog of ordinariness of our day-to-day lives can mean that there's a real risk for us that our faith will be less than what it needs to be. I hope that as we hear this passage from Ephesians, it will be a challenge and an encouragement for many of us here to, to renew our commitment to spiritual struggle in the Christian life. So, I'd love you to have a look with me at Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. We're just reading these last verses. Finally, Paul begins his conclusion to the letter. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Uh, The idea of God's power has, of course, been a rich theme throughout Ephesians. Um, If you've been following us with the whole series, I hope you'll you'll see how actually lots of themes uh, from the whole letter get kind of focused here in the conclusion. But in chapter 1, Paul prayed that his, his readers would know deeply and richly the power of God for them. And in chapter 3, he prayed again that they would grasp the power of the God whose power is able to do, as he put it there, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So he says, be strong in God's power. And that call is expanded in the next verse, verse 11. He says, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, what is this armour of God? Um, If you noticed, in the Old Testament reading, uh, we saw Isaiah describe God coming in his his own strength, his own arm brought him victory. God going to bring about justice. And Isaiah depicts him as dressed in armour. He says he put on righteousness, this is verse 17 in Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And elsewhere Isaiah also speaks of faithfulness or truthfulness being the sash about his waist. And Paul is picking up these images and using them here in Ephesians and what he's doing is applying these Old Testament images of God's armour to Christians today. And what it shows us is that this armour of God is in a way God's own armour. These are the characteristics that God possesses that give form to his strength. Now that's actually quite important because what it reminds us is that we don't stand, whatever we're going to say about standing, we don't stand in our own strength. This is not a call just to work really hard in the Christian life. Paul doesn't end his letter by saying, now make a big effort. He says, stand in the strength of God. Put on the armour of God. Because as we've seen, everything in Ephesians comes out of what God has done for us in Christ. And all we've got to do is to get on board that. Now, as we'll see, this does demand things of us, but it's very different from us just thinking, I've got to be really strong. Now, we'll come back to the armour in a moment. uh, But at this point, Paul pauses to explain why this call to join with God in battle is important. Verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now this again is actually language we've seen before in Ephesians. In chapter 1 we read of how Christ has been exalted far above every rule and authority. In chapter 2 we saw how apart from Christ we were once following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as Paul put it there. And in chapter 3 we saw that God's whole purpose in Christ was to display his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What are these rulers and authorities? What is, what is going on here? And kind of importantly for us, can we really believe this stuff? I think that's a, a real challenge for us here. Do we really believe that the kinds of things we're reading about here are real? Christians elsewhere in the world actually don't have a lot of trouble thinking in these terms. Uh, my sister lived in India for a little bit. And while she was there, she got to know a pastor from a small church, from a small village whose church was actually growing and going very well. And she asked him, so, you know, what's the, what do you do here? What's the strategy? How, do you, how does your church grow? And he said, oh, well, I guess what mostly happens is people in the mountains get possessed by demons and uh, the shamans can't drive them out. And so they come to us and we cast the demons out and some of them stay at church. Okay, that's their church growth strategy. Wow. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with that kind of thing. Um, but I also don't think it's really what Paul's talking about here. It's part of it, but I don't think it's the main thing. One of the things scholars have puzzled over this language and argued about is whether this language of rulers and authorities is, is actually just a way of talking about political powers in Paul's day, like the Roman emperor. Now, I don't think it's that simple because there's clearly spiritual forces here, not just big human ones. But that idea can lead us to, lead us to see something significant, something that can help us understand these ideas. You see, one of the things that puzzles people about politics and societies is the way in which evil can kind of exceed any particular evil acts that particular individuals do. There were evil men among the leaders of the Nazis. But there is a way in which their particular evil acts in no way matched the immensity of the evil that happened to the Jews. When the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt attended the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the man who had organised the gas chambers, what she found was not actually an evil mastermind, but just a kind of pathetically self-centred human being. There were evil, there were some nasty people among those who organised for the systematic adoption out of Aboriginal children throughout the 20th century. But the evil they unleashed was, was actually far greater than anything any particular individual can be held down to. And what this points us to, I think, is what the Bible says loud and clear, that there is more going on with evil than we can see. There are evil agencies in the world that transcend the human dimension and God's battle is, first and foremost, with them. 
the Christian life and the life and health of a church, our church, therefore, are not primarily up against the obstacles that they seem to be up against. It can feel like that, of course. Roger Fitzharding and I have just been trading flus for about a month now. And it's getting really annoying and it is an obstacle and it feels flesh and blood is kind of part of the problem here. But the truth is that we are opposed by spiritual enemies which are no less real because they are unseen. And it's because of this that we must be strong. Verse 13, Therefore put on the full armour of God, says Paul again, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. We face an onslaught, a climactic struggle which Paul describes as a coming day of evil. I don't, I don't fully understand this. It's quite scary. And on that day we must seek to stand our ground so that when everything has been accomplished, those, we will be those still standing among the wreckage of the battlefield. Now, that's a pretty heavy and in some ways bizarre way to think about the Christian life, it might seem to you. And we'll come back to the significance of this language in a moment. But for now, let's just roll with it and see where it takes us. It's in order to, that we may stand on that day that we're urged to put on the full armour of God. Well, what does that mean? What does that involve? How do we do that? Well, that's where the rest of the passage goes and we need to just make sure we've understood it. What we get in, in the next verses is a picture of somebody kitting up for battle, putting on the different bits of armour and weaponry they need. Um, action movies uh, always have a kitting up scene. It's like this classic staple moment. that you And no matter how many times you see it, it's kind of fun. I saw the original Matrix movie again recently, which was great. And one of the best bits is when Neo and Trinity are going back to rescue Morpheus and Neo, great Keanu moment, says, we're going to need guns, lots of guns. And suddenly they're in the middle of this massive aisle of armoury. It's so cliched, but it's, you know. Anyway, we're kind of kidding up. We're kidding up, but most of our, most of our weaponry is defensive. There's only one offensive weapon here. It's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. The rest of it is just armour. And these are the things we have to be, have with us and keep close to us in order that we will be ready to stand on the day. Well, what are these things? Paul lists six in verses 14 to 17. Have a look at them. He lists the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. He imagines feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's a weird way to put it, but I think what he's picturing is just these are the shoes. Your shoes are readiness to proclaim the gospel. Um, Then he says, take up the shield of faith, which he pictures extinguishing the devil's flaming arrows. And finally, he describes the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Truth, righteousness, Readiness to share the gospel of peace, faith, salvation and the word of God. These are the things we are to equip ourselves with in order to stand in the battle. Now it's worth observing that these are all ideas that have come up throughout Ephesians, earlier in the letter. Truth and righteousness have come up especially in the last two chapters. Um, 
For example, chapter 5, verse 9 says, The fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And the mention of the gospel of peace takes us back to chapter 2 where we saw how Christ's death on the cross has made a new kind of peace possible. And the call in chapter 4 to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The idea of faith has been central to the letter, as I'm sure you're aware. Chapter 2, remember, by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, And in chapter 3, actually, it's all over the place, really. Salvation, too, is there in chapter 2, by grace you've been saved. And also, last week, Christ, the Saviour of the Church. And the idea of the Spirit's Word is central, really, to the whole letter. What Paul is doing here, you see, at the very end of the letter is is bringing together some of the key themes and ideas into one picture of a Christian who is ready to stand. And I think that helps us understand the way this whole image works. See, what it means to put on the armour of God is for your whole way of life to be energised by and centred around the truths of the gospel that this letter has been talking about. This is a picture of someone whose sense of their place and their task in the world is deeply and richly shaped by the kinds of things Ephesians has been talking about. Talking about the purposes of God. It's a call to let the truths of what God has done in Jesus sink deep into our convictions so that our confidence in our faith, in the salvation God has won for us, becomes the anchor point that gives stability and security to our lives. And so that a desire for righteousness becomes our great priority. And so that when we open our mouths, what we say flows from beginning to end out of the truth of God's word. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that the final thing Paul calls for is prayer. The language now is no longer the language of battle. He's slipped back into plain speaking, I think. But it still has the same sense of energy and focus. Look at verse 18 there. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Um, This is a call for prayer which is generous, diverse and constant. All occasions, all kinds of prayer. We're not to be anxious about praying the right prayers or just for the right things. We're not to be kind of worried about different forms of prayers We're simply called to pray. But to pray with purpose and diligence, we're to be alert, which I think means being conscious of the reality of our situation, of the struggle we're engaged in. And we're to keep on praying and to not give up and not neglect it. And we're to pray for the saints, for Christians around us and around the world. And Paul ends with a request for prayer for himself. That also gives us a picture, I think, of the kind of engagement in Christian faith that he's calling for. Verse 19, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He was, in fact, in prison. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is a picture of Paul standing in the battle, confident in faith, committed to the truth, zealous for righteousness and and desiring to speak the gospel and confident only because he trusts in God's salvation. 
Well, how are we going to respond to what we've seen here? What is this going to do to us? At the end of Ephesians, at the end of our series, I think what this passage does is to challenge us to make sure we're engaging in the spiritual reality of the Christian life with the seriousness it deserves. This, I think, is why Paul uses the language he does here. You see, the images of war, of standing your ground in the battle, armour and so on, they're all, of course, they're metaphors. Right? Christians have no actual violence to engage in. We have no physical pieces of armour to put on. But that doesn't mean these images are unimportant or random. They do something. And what they do is to help us to imagine in the right way, to help us to think in the right way, to engage with what we cannot see from the right standpoint. You see, it's one thing to say that faith needs to be central in our lives. It's another thing to say that faith is our shield with which we can extinguish all the arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one. The two might mean something similar, but that's not the point. The point is not just that we understand. The point is that our imagination be captured so that we're inspired to act. We're called to imagine living the Christian life as like being in a war, being hard-pressed in battle, facing a challenging enemy, and therefore to put on the full armour of God so that we will stand. Because without this kind of vision, you see, we will inevitably underestimate the challenges we face, the enemy arrayed against us. As we saw at the beginning, in our daily experience, the Christian life can so often seem just really ordinary. And this can all too easily lead us to think that it is ordinary. And so to stop worrying so much about things like truth, righteousness, faith, salvation. But that's deadly. Because in fact, the Christian life is a spiritual struggle. It is a battle with unseen enemies. And that is the truth of things and it is very dangerous for us to underestimate. And it means we need to engage with our faith, in our faith as, as a matter of urgency and necessity to hold on to our faith in God's salvation as if our life depends on it. To cling to holiness and godliness not simply as a matter of preference but because they will save our lives. And to seek to speak the words of God, words that flow out of the gospel because it is the only weapon we have in a deadly struggle. That is how we will stand firm when the truth of God's word and our trust in it is at the centre of our lives, our urgent concern and the thing on which we rely. How we imagine the Christian life matters because if we think of Christian life as like a battle, We'll take it seriously. But if we think of it as something less than that, we will underestimate what we are engaged in and leave ourselves exposed. So let me ask you, as we close our series in Ephesians, let me ask you to consider how you think about your Christian faith. What 
is it that you think you're engaged in? Are you taking it with the seriousness that it deserves? If somebody looked at your life, the way you nurture and care for your faith, the way you speak, your attention to habits of righteousness, what kind of understanding of the Christian life would they see? Would they see somebody engaged in a battle or something else? For some of us, this passage is going to be just an encouragement to persevere in the ordinary, to keep going, to keep taking our faith seriously and a reminder of what is at stake. But for other, others of us, this passage may be really a bit of a shock. It's so often, I think, we can be very complacent about the kinds of things Paul talks about here. We can treat our faith as, it's something, as if it's something we can just take for granted, something we can, that we can assume will just keep hanging around. We can have a complacent attitude towards righteousness, how easy it is for us to be pretty untroubled by sin in our lives. And we can have a, a complacent attitude towards the Word of God, how, how easy it is for us to go weeks on end without our words and our thoughts being consciously shaped by the priorities of God's purposes in Christ. Sometimes I think, and I want to make it clear, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here as well, but sometimes I think the way we engage in, the, in living the Christian life is less like a battle than, than like a cooking class or a kind of shopping trip where we can experiment and try things out, but if it doesn't work out, it's not that big a deal. We can see this above all, I think, in the way we pray because prayer is, of course, the great indicator of, of what we imagine ourselves to be involved in. And so often our commitment to prayer reflects a vision of the Christian life which is hardly even aware of a spiritual battle. The aim of this passage, though, is not to make us feel bad, but to wake us up, to challenge us and to help us to step up to the fight. I have no doubt that actually engaging in faith as a spiritual struggle was in some ways just as much a challenge in the first century as it is in ours. Did you see that at the end in verses 21 and 22, Paul just gives these details of Tychicus's trip to Ephesus and it's like, you know, we're in spiritual realities and now we're travel plans. And I suspect that for the small Christian communities of the first century, probably a lot of their lives felt a long way from the things this passage describes, just like ours do. But we mustn't let our vision of the Christian life be numbed by its ordinariness. Because the fact of the matter is that to be a Christian is to be engaged in a spiritual battle, a struggle in which we are called to stand up and to stand firm. And so to finish, and to finish this whole series, I want to call all of us here tonight to make a commitment to do just that, to see our faith, perhaps for some of us to keep seeing our faith, but for others of us perhaps for the first time to see our faith as a spiritual battle and to make a commitment to stand. I want to urge you, especially if you feel like you haven't been engaging with your faith in this way, 
with the urgency and focus that it it deserves. I want to urge you to make a decision tonight to stand in the battle. Perhaps this will be a moment for some of us here to engage with our faith in a new way. I hope it will be. Because if we really are engaged in a battle, then we really do need the armour of God. Now, we're all in different places, so I just want to suggest a few practical ways you might actually do this. First, we're about to share the Lord's Supper. And you might want to use that as an opportunity to pray to God. To pray to God and to make a commitment to organising your life more fully around him. Actually, I think sharing the Lord's Supper is the perfect way to make that kind of commitment because as we saw at the beginning, we don't stand in our own strength but in his. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's one thing you might want to do. Second, though, you might want to make a commitment particularly to prayer, to praying in a more focused and deliberate way, to be alert, as Paul says, and to keep on praying. Um, There's lots of ways to do this, but one practical way you might want to do this is to join in praying for Church in the Graveyard, this congregation, and for this whole church. Um, For the next year... I'm going to run a prayer meeting on the first Sunday of every month at 6 o'clock. Next Sunday is super, so we'll do it at 5.45. Anyway, these things happen. That's my plan. If it's just me, that's okay. But perhaps you'd like to commit to praying to that. Uh, We'll meet next week. Uh, But finally, though, it may be that, that God has called you tonight to make a big change in your life to step up in your faith in a new way. And it may be that you want to make a a real decision for things to be different. And if that's you, can I just encourage you to do it and then to tell us, communication card, come and talk to me, but to do it because that kind of moment does not come around every day. In the book of Ephesians, we have caught sight, I hope, of a wealth of grace. We saw how God in his grace has saved us from sin and seated us with with Christ in the heavenly places so that he might shower blessings upon us forever. That's a good way of summing up chapters 1 to 3. And we've seen how he has called us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in, in life and light as his beloved children. That's chapters 4 five and some of six. And now we've seen how we are called to stand in the battle, holding fast to Christ in faith, righteousness, dependence on the word of God and prayer. And so can I urge you as we finish looking at Ephesians to not underestimate the struggle we're engaged in, the high calling we have been called to in Christ, or most of all, the wealth of God's grace for us in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are in battle. 
with unseen enemies and that that is a very real thing. We know that all too often we forget that, Lord. But we ask this evening that you would enable us to live our lives anew in faith, that you would give us your vision to see the struggle we are engaged in, but even more than that, the victory you have already won in Christ so that we may be able to stand, stand supported by faith and righteousness and truth and the gospel of peace and the salvation you have won for us. Lord, we would really love it if you would change us so that we would live lives of wonderful faith and so that on the last day we would stand. And we pray this, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.